0: I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Rob, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program on Oral Head and Neck Cancer Treatment Updates. And today's program is done in partnership with the Oral the Head and Neck, I'm sorry, the Head and Neck Cancer Alliance and we're delighted to have them with us today. And you'll be hearing more about the Head & Neck Cancer Alliance um, as the program proceeds. But we're delighted to be partnering with them on today's program. Today's activity is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program and for their support of this program for many years now. Um, And uh, I also would like to acknowledge the number of participants we have on the call today. So we have over 352 participants on the call. And you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have a number of international participants on the call today. From Canada, Egypt, Greece, India, Iran, Kenya, Morocco, Malawi, Mauritius, Nepal, New Zealand, Nigeria, Paraguay, Puerto Rico, Saudi Arabia, Sweden, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a global call as well. And it's a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now it is my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Terry Day. And Dr. Day is Director, Head and Neck Oncology, Sarah Cannon National Group, Head and Neck Specialist, Sarah Cannon. And Dr. Day will be addressing overview of oral head and neck cancer in the context of COVID, Omicron, seasonal flu, including staging and diagnosing, surgical interventions, including plastic and reconstructive surgery, speech and swallowing rehabilitation, guidelines and tips for the care of your teeth, gums, and mouth, and key questions in making treatment decisions. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Day.
2: Thank you, Dr. Benzer. Um I'm pleased to participate in this uh, teleconference again, and I want to thank Cancer Care uh, the Neck Cancer Alliance, uh, the esteemed panel, and, and the sponsors that allow these educational events to happen on behalf of our cancer patients and their families. I would also like to acknowledge Shemrit Sharab, our Cancer Research Fellow, who contributed to some of the work that I'll be presenting today. Uh, the topics um, that I'll cover, uh, you just mentioned an overview of head neck cancers, uh, reconstructive surgery, as well as cancer, uh, Curative surgery, the importance of dental evaluation and hygiene, and speech and swallowing therapy and rehabilitation. I'm also at the completion uh, going to prevent, present some ideas for patients and the family members on this call about what are the critical important questions you want to ask your uh, physicians and care team when you're going through the diagnosis and treatment for head and neck cancers. So, first, I'll cover a brief overview of oral neck cancer and preface it in the cancer outcomes can be impacted and or delayed when a patient is stricken with an infectious agent before, during, or after cancer diagnosis and treatment. This does apply to COVID, the flu, and other infections. So please keep in mind that we should have a low threshold for testing, especially in patients who have immune compromise or may be on chemotherapy. Uh, But cancer doesn't stop uh, because we have an infection and uh, so cancer curative treatment needs to continue when possible. So it's crucial to begin by emphasizing the need for a multidisciplinary approach to the diagnosis and treatment for the complexity of head and neck cancers. Our panelists will further reinforce this focus and the vast array of specialists that are necessary to provide optimal care for many head and neck cancer patients. These numerous specialists includes uh, but are not limited to the following, and that includes specialists in chemotherapy, immunotherapy, radiation therapy, head neck surgery, and reconstructive surgery, dental oncology or prosthodontics, speech pathology, nursing, nutrition, head neck radiologist, head neck pathologist, oral pathologist, endocrinology, psychology, survivorship and palliative care, Social workers and clinical trials experts, among others. So, it's such a complex disease, it's affecting parts of our body that we use every day. So, I'm going to simplify the types of head and neck cancers into three broad categories, really to reduce confusion and simplify it so we can focus on the treatments and diagnosis. So, for simplicity, Uh, We're going to talk about mouth cancers, we're going to talk about throat cancers, and we're going to talk about voice box cancers. So now into the medical lingo, mouth cancers are also called oral cancers, and these are typically in the mouth. They're visible by a physician or dentist and are usually diagnosed when there's a red or white spot that does not heal and a biopsy is performed. These are most commonly caused by tobacco use or smoking. Now secondly, throat cancer are also called pharynx cancers, or the common one we hear every day is oropharyngeal cancer, most commonly related to HPV. So HPV throat cancer is oropharynx cancer, and even though they sound the same, these are not oral cancers. They're in the back of the throat, in the back of the tongue, or the tonsil, and they're most often diagnosed when a male has an enlarged lymph node or swelling in one side of the neck. These are most common from HPV, Human human papillomavirus. And thankfully, there's now a vaccine that can help prevent these cancers uh, that can be given to boys and girls, and now in the United States, up to age 45. So uh, ask your physician about getting the vaccine. Now, thirdly, the voice box cancers are also called laryngeal cancers. And these are visible only with a lighted camera on an endoscope or a mirror, so they're hard to see but people usually have hoarseness that doesn't go away after several weeks, and they should see an ear, nose, and throat doctor who will look down there and sometimes uh, perform a biopsy of a vocal cord. These are most commonly caused from smoking and tobacco use. <clears throat> Unfortunately, due to time constraints, we can't go into all of the other head neck cancers um, today, but hopefully in uh, one of the future teleconferences So I'll move on and give a brief overview of surgical intervention with regard to head and neck cancer and head and neck reconstructive surgery or plastic surgery. So to simplify, we'll go back to the mouth and throat and voice box cancers. And for mouth cancer or oral cancer, surgery is the preferred treatment for cure and has been shown to be more effective than chemotherapy or immunotherapy or radiation therapy. However, when surgery is done, we get a new stage for the cancer based on the pathology diagnosis, and if it is a stage three or four, we most commonly recommend radiation to start a month after the surgery. On the other hand, the oropharyngeal or HPV throat cancers can be treated equally well with radiation or surgery in the early stages, and by early stages, I mean a stage one or two and that can be either transoral robotic surgery through the mouth without any incisions, or it can be radiation beams uh, to the cancer without any surgery. Now, for the throat cancers that are stage three or four, these usually require what we call multimodality treatment. That means two treatments at least together, and that would be chemotherapy with radiation therapy, or they could be equally cured with surgery followed by radiation therapy. So when we go to the larynx cancer, larynx is uh, the voice box. That can be treated also equally well with radiation or surgery for early stage or combination therapy like the oropharynx cancer for the later stage 3 and 4. Now one thing to keep in mind in surgery is that surgery often requires removal of the primary side or where the tumor started, but also removal of the lymph nodes from the neck which is where the tumor can spread, and this is called a neck dissection. The important part that when the pathologist gets all of the specimens from surgery, they can then give a new pathologic stage and tell how many lymph nodes, if any, had cancer in them. And this can make a different decision about any need for future treatment. Now, one of the major advances over the past few decades is head and neck reconstructive and plastic surgery. And it's the ability to replace the structures that are removed during surgery, improving cosmesis, function, and quality of life. So now surgeons are able to do transplants from the same person's leg or arm or back, and it can now be used to to rebuild the face, the mouth, the throat, and even the jaw bones by connecting the arteries and veins back up so it's living tissue now in the face from another part of the body. So if important structures such as the throat, tongue, or voice box, or jawbone are removed, they can be rebuilt to restore the ability to talk, chew, eat, and drink. And this has been better than ever before. Also, it's important that we understand that maxillofacial prosodonics and these specialists can make artificial ears, eyes, nose, uh, palate, uh, and teeth that can be implanted into the body to also help improve these outcomes. So this leads us into the importance of the dental evaluation and dental hygiene. And treatment for head and neck cancer involves surgery or radiation or chemotherapy, and these can impact the quality and flow of saliva in the mouth, and it also damages cancer cells, but can damage the normal taste buds, saliva glands, chewing teeth, And it can irritate the inside of the mouth or throat, which is called mucositis. So the goal of new targeted intensity modulated radiation therapy, or IMRT, is to avoid the important structures such as the saliva glands and teeth and jaw bones while giving a therapeutic dose to the cancer regions. So another complication of surgery or radiation includes a term called trismus, which is restriction or pain when trying to open the mouth. This can be reduced or prevented with the right dental and physical therapy exercises on the chewing muscles. It usually can be done pre, during, or post-treatment. And uh, it's also important that patients are educated about hydration, saliva substitutes, oral hygiene, and radiation, uh, oral fluoride trays to prevent the damage to the teeth and the mouth. So, I'll now go into the speech and swallowing therapy and rehabilitation, also a critical component of improving outcomes. Speech and swallowing function are commonly affected by the presence of tumor in the head and neck region as well as by the related treatment. That can be surgery or radiation. So, early involvement of a speech-language pathologist is of the essence. Many patients are seen before the start of treatment for a baseline evaluation of speech, voice, and swallowing. Preoperative and and pre-radiation counseling is given regarding expected outcomes and how their therapy and their exercises can be done to reduce the side effects of the surgery and the radiation on the swallowing and talking muscles. Patients are typically seen once every two weeks during radiation or chemoradiation and post-surgery to optimize their swallowing function and maximize post-treatment outcomes the speech and swallowing therapy typically continues until their speech and swallowing function has improved to a uh, expected stable and optimized outcomes. And sometimes this does take months or years to get to that point. So lastly, uh, Dr. Mesner, I, I wanted to give patients a few key questions that they can ask their uh, physicians and care team about their treatment. And I'll break those down by the types of cancer first. So for mouth cancer, the questions you want to ask, can I see a dentist and speech therapist prior to starting treatment is one question. Another, what type of reconstruction will be done if the surgery is removed? And what effect will it have on me if I undergo surgery to remove my cancer? For throat cancers, you want to ask, what are the advantages and disadvantages of treatment with radiation? instead of robotic surgery? Will it impact my swallowing and speech and mucus? How and when will I know if the treatment worked? Who will check me and how frequent after treatment will I have exams, tests, or scans? Now, for voice box cancer, you want to ask, what impact will the treatment have on my voice and swallowing? What voice and swallowing exercises can I do to prevent side effects? And then for all head and neck cancers, as we mentioned, you want to ask, will my case will be presented at a multidisciplinary head and neck tumor board to be sure we're doing the right treatment? And will I have a multidisciplinary team helping me through treatment and survivorship after the cancer is gone? And does this include specialists in nutrition and social work and nursing and speech and dental and physical therapy, along with my radiation, surgery, and chemotherapy specialists? So that's all I have today. I do want to thank all the presenters and participants in this important teleconference and to the patients and their caregivers who face these difficult challenges that we can continue to improve both cure and quality of life. Thank you very much.
1: Oh, Thank you very much, Dr. Day. That was really an outstanding presentation. You really set the stage for today's program and going over many of the details of the surgery and reconstructive surgery And speech and swallowing rehab, rehabilitation, Um, so really covered uh, really a gamut of things, including really uh, important questions um, in in making treatment decisions. So um, I thank you very much, and uh, thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Christoph Misikowicz, and Dr. Misikowicz is... Associate Professor of Medicine, Hematology and Medical Oncology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, Clinical Director of Research in Head and Neck, Clinical Director of the Center for Personalized Cancer Therapeutics, CPCT, the Tisch Cancer Institute, Chairman of the Oncology Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee. And Dr. Misikowicz will be addressing new chemotherapy options, including concurrent chemotherapy and radiotherapy, managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, key questions to ask about your quality of life concerns, and the role of clinical trials, how research increases your treatment options. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mistikowicz.
3: So good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening, probably depending on the time zone. Uh, Thank you for this very kind introduction. As you see, my name is kind of long, I'm from Poland, but I always introduce myself as a Dr. Chris, and then I see the relief on the patient's face because then kind of it's easier to address me. Um, I, I, I want to say something uh, even in the continuation what uh, Dr. Dehue was saying. So many times when you're going to see um, doctors, and some of them, they're going to be radiation oncologists, surgeons, or medical oncologists, and we're all going to be presenting different treatment options. And I want you to know that we're not competing or fighting with each other, actually. It's not like our role is to convince you to one option versus the other. We just work together to kind of present all the options. And then you, as a patient, you have all the tools to kind of make a decision which option kind of fits you the most, hearing, obviously, all the information. So... That is what we call a multidisciplinary approach. So we're not there to fight. We're not there to compete. I think we just collaborate. We work together to the patient's benefit. So this is how we just set up the tone. And Dr. Day, he covered many aspects of the treatment of head and neck cancer. I'm going to be moving to radiation and chemotherapy and immunotherapy and kind of explain this. And many times I use some metaphors. Some of them may sound a little bit strange, but the purpose of this is just to illustrate the biology and, and the cancer. So the first thing I would say, you heard about surgical resection of the cancer, which is absolutely true. And many times what I tell my patients, because I'm asked which option I should pick, I use the metaphor, if you can imagine having a weed in the garden, and obviously the natural response is that you wanna just manually remove it. Sometimes you have to use the shovel and kind of dig it out. But the purpose of the removing the weed is that you wanna remove all the roots. You cannot afford to leave even a tiny root or microscopic root behind because you know what's going to happen. This weed's going to regrow. And cancer kind of behaves in the same fashion. So first question that we ask the surgeons, like, are you going to be able to remove it all? And which sometimes it's not an easy task in head and neck, because there are some structures in the neck that cannot be touched. So it's not like the surgeon doesn't want to remove it just because it would be dangerous if they're going to be manipulating in this area. So many times there are anatomical kind of restrictions that the surgeons they have. And the second part is... What's going to be the outcome of the surgical resection? Because, um, for example, the tongue can be reconstructed, and I think the surgery is absolutely the way to go in in many cases. But for example, when we're dealing with laryngeal cancer, removing a voice box subjects the patient to losing the voice box. There is not such a thing like reconstructive or uh, laryngeal procedures are going to completely replace the, the natural lar- larynx. So many times, patients are offered non surgical approach because the surgery cannot remove the entire cancer. And it doesn't make sense to remove half. It's sort of like with the weed analogy, you cannot just cut what's above the ground and leave the roots. You just have to remove everything. So we always tell the surgeons that obviously if you can ensure me that you're gonna remove it all the obviously this is the way to go. And then the second obviously is if it's, we can afford to remove this organ, whether we should go with the organ sparing procedure, meaning you keep the organ that has the cancer, in which you know, can be a nose, can be a tongue, base of the tongue, or can be the larynx, we just want to keep it intact and treat it with something else. So this is the first part. The second point that I want to discuss, many times we ask, there is something called HPV. So basically, we divide cancer, locally advanced cancer, autopharyngeal cancer, into HPV positive and HP negative. And why we do so? Because the HPV positive cancer, many times associated with no smoking and light smoking, those patients have absolutely excellent prognosis. To the contrary, to patients that are HPV negative and let's say they smoke a lot, the prognosis is not as good as the other ones. So in the past, we used to treat those patients with the same fashion. We used to give them the same dose of radiation, the same dose of chemotherapy, and we realized that if we treat patients aggressively with radiation and chemotherapy, more we're going to give, more obviously we're going to use certain treatments. It comes with the toxicity, sort of like a cumulative effect. So having this in mind, since the HPV-positive patients had such excellent prognosis, we ask ourselves, are we giving too much? Maybe we should de-escalate the treatment and give those patients less treatment, still maintaining the efficacy of the treatment, meaning still eradicating the cancer successfully, but we can spur the patients from side effects. And actually, there is a tremendous trend, many clinical trials were done, and they still are ongoing to kind of give us answers, obviously, whether we can treat them with less treatment, with lower dose, or maybe shorter the course of the treatment. And actually, right now, some institutions, um, they um, use the the lower dose of radiation, and uh, they consider it as a standard. So you can ask your physicians, if you're a light smoker or if you're HPV positive, or actually both, if there is any clinical trial and what would be the dose of radiation of chemotherapy because you can be a candidate for the lower dose and you're gonna subject yourself, obviously, to less side effects. So this is oropharyngeal cancer. The next one I wanna move to something called induction chemotherapy. So induction chemotherapy is something that We're giving chemotherapy to shrink the cancer before we're going to try to kill the cancer. And the purpose of induction chemotherapy is that many times the cancer is is enormous size. It's pretty big, and it can be infiltrating some structures that are very dangerous or very essential. And what we're trying to do, we're trying to shrink the cancer before we're going to remove it surgically or before we're going to do the chemotherapy and radiation. So there is a tremendous area of research in this area because, as of now, we use chemotherapy to shrink the cancer and there is many questions question whether we can use immunotherapy instead because it gives you less side effects. So, I would always ask, again, two questions. If there is a need for the patient to have a shrinking induction chemotherapy that can be given prior chemotherapy and radiation or surgery. And the second question is, can you participate in a clinical trial? The last thing I want to focus on chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and radiation and explain how those treatments they work, what kind of side effects that they have, and that, how they can u- be used in the treatment of your cancer. And this is how I explain it. When the patient has a cancer, we can use chemotherapy, and chemotherapy has been on the market for many, 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 many years. And the way I explain it, it's sort of like a poison. We're trying to poison the cancer, but at the same time, unfortunately, we're poisoning the human body. That's why people have side effects, and that's the main problem. And the chemotherapy is still effective. It's still being used, and I'm not trying to say that this is something that should be eliminated from the treatment, but at the same time, we have new treatment called immunotherapy. And many times I'm asked, what is immunotherapy? The way that I explained this, that, that cancer is a very, very tricky illness. The cancer is making our body blind. Basically, our body cannot see the cancer, and uh, the human body does does not know that you have a cancer. And as a consequence of this, our body is doing nothing about this. So basically, we're doing nothing with the fact that we have a cancer, which is different, for example, when we catch infection, our body will know there is an enemy in in our body, and our body will respond with fever and all those um, complaints that we have when we develop an infection. So what we, what we can do to kind of unblind our body and make our body to fight with the cancer, we give immunotherapy. And what we do, we basically stimulating immune system so this cancer that is not being visible to our immune system, now all of a sudden becomes visible. And when our body kind of sees the cancer, all of a sudden says, let's fight with this cancer. So the beauty of immunotherapy is that you use your own weapons, the body is using their own weapons to fight with the cancer, and it's very effective. So um, at the same time, this treatment, which is different from chemotherapy, does not have so many side effects. And I'm going to mention a few situations when the immunotherapy can be considered or can be given. So for example, Many times I'm asked if the immunotherapy can be given with radiation that I'm going to cover in a second. And unfortunately, as of now, it's not FDA approved. There are some trials and there are some questions that we're asking if the chemotherapy can be replaced with immunotherapy. So the only way to have immunotherapy given with radiation is in the clinical trial. Many times we ask, can I get immunotherapy before the surgery or before um, chemotherapy and radiation? And... The same answer is that, yes, there are several clinical trials where you can be spurred from chemotherapy and be given immunotherapy instead, but because it's not FDA approved, can be only given in a clinical trial. We do, however, use immunotherapy in patients' That is not curable, meaning that it's very advanced, it's metastatic, or it's unresectable. And actually, we use immunotherapy. And immunotherapy is very successful because, on the one hand, it's quite effective, but at the same time, it's minimally toxic. So I think it's worth asking, obviously, if you would be a candidate for the immunotherapy. And something that I want to mention that I was kind of thinking even today, immunotherapy was about I would say four or five years ago and recently I saw a patient of mine that is still alive, patient was treated with immunotherapy and is doing so well. Something that was unheard of before immunotherapy uh, wasn't discovered. So what I'm trying to say if you hear the clinical trial I would strongly encourage you to participate because you may have access to very innovative cutting edge treatment that normally wouldn't be available to you. And you can be like this patient of mine that you're gonna see your doctor five free from now and you're gonna be pretty in good shape and it's it's an amazing feeling for me as a doctor and I'm sure it's an amazing feeling for you as a patient. So this is what I would strongly consider. To summarize, all those treatments that I mentioned, they come with side effects and something that I'm going to encourage you patients, that you should be very clear with your doctor and inform them if you um, develop any side effects, because most of them are manageable, and most of them, they can be treated with some kind of a form of medication, or those de-escalation, or those changes, but we're not going to be able to, to know unless you're going to inform us. So I would say first, inform your physician. Uh, you can inform your nurse, and I think it's going to be easily addressed. And at the end, what I want to say that nothing would be possible whatever i mentioned so far without your participation without giving us an opportunity to to trial and because many of you probably participate in clinical trials It wouldn't be possible that obviously we would have all those tools that we use now without your participation. So at the end, I just want to thank you all for your participation. And um, I think that uh, everything is possible. And we're going to probably come up with new treatments. And I hope to do this talk again. So I'm going to be able to tell you more treatments that are going to be available for you. Thank you very much.
1: Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Misikowicz. That was outstanding. Just a wonderful presentation um, and a lot of uh, inspiration and hopefulness about the treatments. And yes, of course, you will be back again um, with new treatments that are available. So so thank you so much. Um, thank you. And now we have all the new treatments as of now, but then what Dr. Maciklitz is saying is based on clinical trials and based on research, there'll be new trials, new treatments for um, oral head and neck cancer. So thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is form- former founding director Cancer Support Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, now part of the Mount Sinai Health System, author and researcher in oncology. And Dr. Fleischman will be addressing the importance of communicating with your healthcare team and guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, follow appointments, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman.
4: Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you to all the people who have signed on to this call today. Um, Treating head and neck cancer, as you've heard from our two previous speakers, is probably one of the most complicated uh, regimens in the cancer world. And um, although with all of the different improvements, especially in the area of immunotherapy, it means that there are a lot of different sub-cancer specialists, Um, each trying to work together in a coordinated way. And you've just heard a plea for you to make sure that if you're having any what seem to be side effects or ill effects uh, during the treatment, to communicate that with the treatment team as well as possible And we know we're asking you to do that just at a time when speaking may be a little bit difficult if you're in the middle of getting chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and immunotherapy, which have a number of effects on the mouth and the throat, Um, and sometimes having all those treatments together can bring on all the side effects at once rather than one set at a time. So we really do understand that, but we understand if you have um, mucositis or esophagitis, which is inflammation or infection of the mouth or the throat or just terrible inflammation in those areas, we understand that uh, speaking may be difficult, um, maybe less so in person, but more so on the telephone. So, um, here's where really relying on written communication can be really helpful, and uh, you and the team can discuss how you'd uh, like to do the communication, how they'd like to receive the communication uh, in emails, text messages, or um, even. Um, In some places where internet is not so available, even sometimes faxing notes back and forth, which is certainly not as quick and as responsive as email or texting, but that can really be helpful if you just can't uh, speak for yourself. The other thing to do is um, we often talk about having a trusted family member or friend who can help both organize the visits and help of communication, and this is really a very important role for them if indeed your voice has changed or um, the uh, effects of the treatment, most of which are temporary, um, extending only a few weeks uh, after the treatment is over. Um, during that time, having somebody be your spokesperson, um, either in... Uh, orally or by writing would be very, very helpful. So, that I think is one of the important points um, in treatment of head and neck cancer that would be different than for many other types of cancer. Um, preparing for visits or preparing for calls or getting your thoughts together uh, before you contact your treatment team in any way and asking questions. Um, is really, really helpful. Uh, it was helpful in the days when most of our work was done in the in the office, live, eyeball to eyeball, person to person. Now that some of it is electronic, on the phone, uh, over uh, text or email, or telehealth, um, that may have changed a little bit. But the idea that um, good communication is uh, vital, and uh, preparing for that can be extremely helpful. So write down your questions um, before a visit. If you're um, doing a telehealth visit, which again may be somewhat limited because of your inability to, um, uh, to communicate well with uh, speaking, Uh, please make sure that you have somebody on the line with you who you trust, who who understands the situation and can be your voice, uh, both literally and figuratively. Um, This is an extraordinary opportunity that we've discovered um, not, you know, uh, uh, sort of suddenly during the pandemic when we found out that uh, some patients said that family members or friends that live in another part of their city, in another state, in another part of the country, or even in another country, who have access to an internet line can participate in their care. And that's something we really just uh, didn't anticipate before the pandemic. So if you're going to have an electronic telehealth visit, having somebody help you is essential. But you with your designated helper uh, together need to do a number of things. Um, If you're going to be using a device, either a telephone or a tablet or a computer, make sure it's charged. Make sure you have a quiet place to have your appointment. If it's your first appointment in telehealth um, or an audio call, make sure that you know exactly how you're going to connect Often the provider's office will uh, make arrangements with you a day or two in advance to, make, to confirm the time and the date and confirm how you're going to connect. It may be by a, a regular phone call, it may be a, 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 an audio video link like, let's like say, FaceTime, or it may be on Zoom, or it may be on GoToMeeting. There are a number of different ways to do this, and the tech people call these platforms. But find out how you're going to connect. Sometimes we'll even do a dry run a day in advance. Um, and having that list of questions um, is really important. So you know that at the end of the visit, whether it's in person or electronically, that you get your questions um, answered. Um, sometimes follow-up may be easier um, Uh, On telehealth. But if you're in the middle of getting radiation therapy, you're probably going to the cancer center five days a week, and you may be able to then coordinate a visit with any of the other specialists during the time uh, before or after your radiation uh, when you're in the building. Um, And then if you're going to do that, just make sure that the radiation people know that you have an appointment um, afterwards as far as timing because sometimes the Machines um, need to be recalibrated or have a service call in the middle, and this way you're not going to miss your appointment. Um, th- these, con- these telehealth visits can be helpful, but if you're there five days a week, you may not need it. Uh, one of the other things that has come up with the really revolution in technology has been electronic medical charts. Uh, There are a number of different brands, and they have allowed you to actually look at some of the results of your lab work, your x-rays, any other imaging, um, pathology reports. Uh, All these reports can often be viewed by you even before your provider's office has seen them or had a chance to contact you in some way either um, by telephone or in an office visit or electronically either by text or email and explain the meaning of these to you. Reading these reports can be scary and you can often jump to very erroneous and wrong conclusions based upon what you're reading because even for medical people who aren't used to treating cancer and understanding that sometimes things are supposed to be abnormal during treatment, and if they're not, that's problematic, you can easily jump to the wrong conclusion. So if you're getting... Um, um emails or notifications that there is a message for you. Sometimes that's um blood test or x-ray report or any of the number of reports. Um, it's best to really review those with your provider's office so you understand the context of that. So, for example... During chemotherapy, we often expect that your white blood cell count would drop. Maybe not as much as it did years ago because we now have medicines to give you to boost your white count during chemotherapy. But if it doesn't drop, that can be a flag that the dose needs to be looked at. So if it is not Abnormal if it 's normal, that may be a reason that your team needs to adjust your dosages, and that 's the kind of thing that if you 're not working in the field or not used to this, you may not be aware of and There are probably over a hundred of these types of situations where something is expected to be abnormal, and um, it 's hard to know that unless you're really experienced in the field. So please um, don't read these things and jump to lots of conclusions that may or may not be correct. It's important to review it with someone from your provider's office. Um, I, I bet there'll be a lot of questions, so I'll stop here and turn the call back over to Dr. Messner.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really outstanding. And really highlighting the importance of communicating with your healthcare team and really how to handle the telehealth, telemedicine appointments to get the most out of them. So I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Amanda Hollinger, and um, Ms. Hollinger is Executive Director, Head and Neck Cancer Alliance, and she is a partner organization on today's program and delighted to have her here today and she will be discussing Head & Neck Cancer Alliance's free programs and services, and we're giving you all the information you need to contact them. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed
5: esteemed colleague, Ms. Hollinger. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner, and I'm just honored to be a part of the call today and the program with these excellent panelists. I, myself, learn something new every time, so I really appreciate all the information um, and support for patients. So uh, I am with the Head & Neck Cancer Alliance, and we are a nonprofit organization, and we focus on prevention, support, and survivorship. And we do this in a couple of different ways. We have programs that include a peer-to-peer support program, and that matches patients, survivors, or caregivers with others that have gone through similar experiences so that they can talk um, or email or connect. We also have an ambassador program, and that's where survivors and caregivers share their stories and experiences and act as advocates in their communities and beyond. Um, and we have ambassadors all across the United States. In addition, we have an online support community that has more than 11,000 active members. Um, and we have members from uh, many countries as well as the United States. We also host webinars throughout the year about every other month on different survivorship topics. Some recently have included radiation fibrosis, mental health concerns, how to share a head and neck cancer diagnosis with colleagues or with loved ones, Um, and those then go onto our YouTube channel so that you can watch them later. We also have a clinical trial finder uh, where patients can enter in their specific information about their disease and stage and other things and their location preferences and match with trials that may be a benefit for them. Uh, There is also a resource on that clinical trial page where you can connect with a support specialist um, to get some more assistance with working through that uh, platform. And then on the prevention side, we host the Oral Head and Neck Cancer Awareness Program in April, which involves hundreds of medical sites across the country that participate in free screening events to just get the word out about signs and symptoms, about risk factors, important prevention tools like the HPV vaccine. Um, And we have uh, events, um, webinars, as I mentioned, throughout the year, but we have next week coming up on June 6th, we're having an open forum on oral cancer with some leading medical experts and survivors to just allow anyone impacted by this disease to come and ask questions live in an interactive forum. So for more information on any of these programs or support resources or to get involved as a volunteer or to refer a patient, please just visit our website at www.headandneck.org. And I look forward to answering any questions. And again, thank you, Cancer Care, for the opportunity to be with you today.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Ms. Hollinger. This is wonderful, and actually your presentation was wonderful, and this, all the resources. So I just want to let everybody know that at the end, in a couple of days after this program, you'll be getting a survey monkey evaluation, which is an evaluation of the program, but you'll also be receiving any of the informational, information that we've given out that has a link or a telephone number or a website or information link that you should go to. Um, and so you'll be getting all that, and even some additional things as well. So um, although it is an evaluation, you'll also look out for those resources as well. So it'll be easier for you if you are trying to write everything down. Um, it'll be all coming to you um, uh, in the uh, SurveyMonkey. And now before we move on to the Q&A, I just want to say a few words about Cancer Care. I'm uh, Carolyn Messner. I'm Senior Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care. I'm going to talk about Cancer Care's free programs and services. And uh, many people contact Cancer Care by calling our HOPE line, 1-800-813-4673. And usually an oncology social worker will always answer the phone, and we have about 40 of them, and they will um, take your question. Usually people have a very specific question, and then they'll go over with them all the services that we offer. So what are they? So we do offer practical, financial, and copayment assistance. We also have a number of online support groups. We have also um, many opportunities to get support from Cancer Care, just a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers. We also offer a number of uh, publications and, of course, many of these workshops as well. And if you go to our website, www.cancercare.org, you'll be able to see all the different services that we offer. And for our international participants, although we are a national organization, If you were to um, visit our website and had a question for a resource in your own country or a resource that you're needing, um, our staff are equipped to help you with that as well. And now we have time for our question and answer period, and I'm going to ask Rob to explain to you how to queue up for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Rob?
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question.
1: Okay, we have a number of questions, Um, let's see. Dr. Fleischman, if you could address this question. Does NCCN guidelines specify speech therapy as part of recommended treatment versus using feeding tube?
4: Oh, that's a very good question. I don't know the answer to that on the top of my head. I have to look at the NCCN guidelines. I do know that that is uh, commonly available in the larger treatment centers. Um, If you're going to to an accredited center, um, that's part of the rehabilitation or prehabilitation package, and that is something that is either available within the centers or available in the community and your treatment team should be able to identify um, someone in the uh, rehab department or physical medicine or rehabilitation department or know who in the community can help you. And if not, um, I, I'm pretty sure there are um, resources out, uh, outside of that and even some telehealth availability. Um, this should be covered under most insurances, but that really changes from place to place.
1: Excellent. Thank you. So um, this is a question from Ms. Burden. I've noticed that since being on a liquid diet, my digestion has gone downhill. How can I be certain this is due to the liquid diet and not the sign my cancer has spread?
6: Um. I'm not sure what you mean about your digestion has gone downhill specifically, but um, if you're taking um, a tube feeding product, a lot of the products have a fiber in them. Um, and so if you're having a lot of diarrhea or digestive challenges with gas, bloating, those sorts of things, um, I would talk with your healthcare team because um, there are products that um, – they may be able to consider adding to your to your regimen or switching out the tube feeding product that you have for another product. Um, and so, any changes along your tolerance or your digestion, definitely talk with your healthcare team. It may be something um, related to what you're consuming or in just modifying that. It could be a medication. It could be a number of things.
1: Okay. Excellent. Thank you.
4: Can I add? Can I add to yes. something? Yes. Um,
6: please.
4: In, uh, in centers that that uh, see a number of patients uh, from a, an Asian Pacific Islander background. Um, many times um, patients from Asia and, and the Pacific Islands who grew up in rural areas don't have access to refrigeration. And some of the dairy products that we use in the um, supplements or really for tube feedings. They're not supplements technically. They're a main source of nutrition. Um, it may not may not be familiar substances. If so, please um, make sure that you that to the treatment team so they can uh, work with the uh, oncology nutritionist or dietitian in the center to make – that you get the proper types of replacements for, um, you know, during the time when you're not eating a regular – your regular diet. And and this is well-known in the cancer community, but sometimes we don't think about it all the time.
1: Excellent. Um, And – Um, That's excellent. So thank you. And a question for uh, Ms. Bearden. Um, My last radiation treatment was months ago, but I still have dramatic changes in taste. I miss being able to enjoy food. Any suggestions you have?
6: Um, Unfortunately, I know the taste um, changes or the lack of taste is a significant side effect when somebody gets radiation in the head and neck region where um, the taste buds are impacted. Um, And, uh, you know, some suggestions, generally speaking, um, foods that patients can usually taste are those that are um, citrusy. If you don't have mouth sores, if you don't have ulcerations in your mouth, um, that may be something to try. Um, Also, sweet usually is picked up quite well by the patients. Um, And so... Sweet and citrusy are usually the two flavors that um, that kind of withstand um, the trauma of the radiation and alterations in the taste buds. Um, you can mix this in your food. I mean, there can be talk with your dietician. They can work with you on um, suggestions as far as um, marinades and things you can add to your food, um, combining different foods, for example, if you're, you know, eating um, a, Protein source, They may, you know, you can suggest a fruit to be added to it to help with um, picking up on some taste. Also, drinking a citrus um, beverage can help while, you know, drinking it while you're eating. Um, there can be some things that may help also as far as rinsing your mouth um, before a meal. Um, sometimes using um, a baking soda mouthwash um, can be very helpful in, in kind of Resetting the taste buds. Avoid mouthwashes that contain alcohol or anything that's going to irritate your mouth. If you have a sore mouth, then the citrus is not the answer for you. But talking with your healthcare team, they'll be able to help you get some some points um, that may work for where you are right then. So I hope that's helpful.
1: Thank you so much. I have a question for Dr. Masikulis. Um Will my hearing ever improve to the way it was before chemo radiation?
3: Um, can you repeat what, what can improve it? Yes. Hearing?
1: Will my hearing ever improve oh, yes. to the way it was before chemo radiation?
3: Sure. So um, one of the side effects of the cisplatin, is the medication that we use during chemotherapy and radiation, there is a hearing loss impairment, and it's dose dependent. And about in about 10% um, cases, basically patients they develop these hearing problems. And it's kind of like within this group, there is a 50% chance that the hearing's gonna recover and 50% it won't. So obviously, um, longer the time from the chemotherapy and radiation, it's less likely that it's gonna recover. So uh, unfortunately, some of the patients, they need the hearing aid. So um, many times what we do, we do the audiology test before the treatment, but if it was not done, I would recommend audiology test now that's gonna determine if this is something permanent. Uh, and eventually if this patient needs to heal
1: engage. Thank you very much. And um, uh, for you, Dr. Mastikwis, how do you determine when you can use immunotherapy versus chemotherapy?
3: Sure. It's, a, it's an excellent question. So, and I'm going to use kind of the metaphor, because, I and I use it because I was speaking to the nurses, and I was kind of educating them about this. So this is what I would say, because w- what I said, that immune system has to see the cancer. If the cancer is going to become invisible, then the, the cancer cannot be seen. And I'm going to use the metaphor. And again, it's a metaphor I'm going to use myself. And actually, I have a child, so it's just going to be maybe I'm going to... So if, let's say, I have some kind of outfit, and let's say I'm going to put on myself socks that are fluorescent, like, you know, sometimes like a cross card they use those like very green kind of color. If my pants are going to be short, that the, the, the immune system is going to be able to see my socks, then the immune system will attack, will react to this, because the immune system is going to say, yes, I see the cancer, and I can attack the cancer. And there is a special test to determine this. But sometimes, and again, this is another metaphor, if my pants are going to go all the way into my pants that my socks are covered, many times the immunotherapy is given with chemotherapy. And the, what the chemotherapy does basically kind of like rips my pants a little bit so the socks can become visible, so the cancer becomes visible. So basically sometimes chemotherapy is given in addition to immunotherapy to make the cancer more visible. So, and it's determined by a test. There is a test called CPS score. And if this score is below one, meaning it's zero, then the immunotherapy has to be given with chemotherapy. If this score is above, immunotherapy alone can be given. So this is how I would answer this question.
1: Thank you. Thanks. Um, And for Dr. Day, does oral cancer occur with pain before it is diagnosed? Mm -hmm.
2: Well, that's a good question, and uh, surprisingly, a lot of the cancers that we see are not painful until they get deep enough to hit a nerve or muscles or other structures. So, uh, for the early cancers, te- uh, typically there is no pain. You just see a lesion or a lump, and so that's why we want everybody to keep all of their dental and, and physician visits uh, for examination.
0: Thank
1: you. And another question for you, Dr. Day. Is reconstructive surgery always an option for people who have had cancer of the oral cavity, or is it purely a case-by-case basis?
2: Well, I think uh, you know that's an excellent question, and even the smallest cancers require small reconstruction, so um, anytime you take out a cancer, you do like to rebuild the area, and uh, thankfully, uh, when they're diagnosed early, the reconstruction is very minimal and there's, it doesn't require a lot of extra surgery, but uh, the larger ones, yes, we can do the, the major transplants now. So, um, you know, I think it's a relative term, what, what is reconstruction. And, and with the tongue, obviously, you want taste, you want feeling, and you want to be able to articulate and move your tongue around. So even small reconstructions can make a major difference in outcomes.
1: And then this question, both for Dr. Day and for Dr. Masikowitz, Dr. Day, if you want to start. providers always, of course, for encourage patients to endure the entire treatment course of treatment. But some patients cannot continue due to the burden of treatment. Do the presenters have recommendations for patient care planning when, when patient wants to quit medical follow-up, rehab follow-up, support services, anything creative to support these difficult transitions? Dr. Day, do sure you
3: want to go so through? yeah sure so i am gonna uh, try to to address this because many times this is what we see uh basically the the treatment would probably you know um this question is about is about chemotherapy and radiation and I'm going to explain it a little bit okay. chemotherapy and radiation is done over the course of seven weeks and I used to explain this it's sort of like going to the beach without a sunblock for seven weeks so what I'm trying to say for the first week people they feel nothing and the toxicity kind of builds up because you can imagine at some point your skin's going to be red and at some point you're going to have blisters and the pain so basically there is a cumulative effect of toxicity that as the treatment continues. And sometimes, you know, halfway through the treatment, patients, they are so debilitated that they, they feel like quitting. There are two pieces that I would say. The first, I would recommend physicians to be absolutely honest what this treatment will entail. This is the first. Second, I do recommend for, the, for patients to reach out to survivals. Patients, they went through this process before they're gonna kind of decide if this is the treatment for them. Uh, So that's going to kind of eliminate those patients that eventually have to quit halfway through. Before they're going to quit, I would still recommend uh, for them to speak to to physicians to see if there is any way to de-escalate the treatment rather than quitting. And I'm going to give you few examples. The chemotherapy can be dose reduced. This is one. So the dose of the chemotherapy can be um, kind of minimized, so you can get the lower dose. This is the first. The radiation is more important than chemotherapy. So many times what we do, we say, stop the chemotherapy because it just gives you just 10% of the benefit and the radiation is giving you the 90%, and we still try to continue with the radiation. But if all those kind of, you know, trials, they kind of make the patient think that I don't want to continue... Yes, it's the patient's decision. Unfortunately, it comes with the consequence, and the consequence is the, the prognosis and, and the fact that the patient can be cured from this cancer is being jeopardized. So, patients must to have it in mind that by stopping the treatment, we kind of, you know, minimizing the chance that this patient is going to be cured. So, I would always recommend you to speak to your physicians. What are the ways to kind of minimize it? But rather than stopping, and I give you some kind of few strategies, just few questions that you can ask your physician.
2: Excellent. And Dr. you uh, want add anything? Well, I I agree 100% uh, with with all of the comments, and I uh, I like the analogy, and also that a lot of patients, uh, almost all, want to quit. We all would want to quit if we were going through uh, you know severe treatments with side effects. And uh, but however, when you do stop the treatment. Um, Unfortunately, stopping the treatment sometimes is worse than continuing. And if the cancer grows or grows back, uh, the pain and discomforts are often worse than the side effects of the treatment. So we encourage people, if you're going to start, uh, complete the treatment, the outcomes are typically better than if you stop midway. during the treatment. But understandably, some people do have to stop for medical reasons. Excellent.
4: Um, I have something to add, Dr. Messner. Yes, oh, um, sure, oh, please. It, sure, in about, I, I have to look up the date, but around 2015, um, my interdisciplinary group published a study that was um, with the Good Dog Foundation, which is a, I guess, one of the first... Um, uh, agencies uh, that supplied therapy dogs in the medical setting who were cleaned and who were well-trained to be in the infusion rooms and radiation therapy suites. And obviously this couldn't be... a Blinded study because people would know if they were getting or not getting the visit. But um, just from the interviews that were done at the end of the study, a few patients said that they were thinking of quitting their treatment in the middle, but they were so they so looked forward to a visit with the dog in the waiting room before their radiation that they came in and they were able to stick it out till the end. So uh, for for what it's worth, um, it was uh, you know a well done but you know anecdotal study and having things that can reward you that are safe to use during radiation and get you through the treatments may be um a bit hokey but helpful <laughs> Excellent. Well, Thank any you. kind of
3: family support, even support group. I mean, if there is anybody right here in the audience, if there is any support group, I think because having what we call it like a treatment body, right, somebody that went through the process, I think they can give the words of encouragement because they they more familiar that if you know than any of us because we talk about this, we kind of the outsider, outside observer rather than you know participants of this. So I think. This is even uh, something for, for anybody in the audience, if we have any survivors here, you can kind of provide your services to the local hospital and be the the tremendous words of encouragement for all those patients in the middle or about to go through this process.
1: And Ms. Hollinger, do you want to comment in terms of those resources that had a neck cancer? Sure.
5: Alliance? Yeah, just of course, just to reiterate, we have several ways that you can reach out for support from other people if you prefer to be more anonymous, you can go online to our support group, but then we also partner with Immerman's Angels, another nonprofit to offer peer-to-peer support with someone who has had a similar diagnosis or for a caregiver and just to be able to connect with somebody one-on-one, we find that is very important. We're also going to be having a survivorship uh, symposium this fall that will be in person in Indianapolis and online as well to give patients another chance to connect with other people.
1: Excellent. Well, I want to thank all of our speakers. I also want to thank all of our participants. I'm going to ask our speakers to provide a takeaway for all of you on today's call. So we'll start with Dr. Day and then Dr. Misikowicz, Dr. Fleischman, Ms. Bearden, Ms. Hollinger. So um, Dr. Day, do you want to go first with just a takeaway for people for today?
2: Yes, I think uh, it's obvious from the multidisciplinary group on the call that uh, it's not just one aspect of treating the cancer, um, it's also the rehabilitation and returning to an enjoyable life. And I think if you have all of the specialists involved from the beginning, it really enhances the outcome and people can go back to lead an enjoyable and, and uh, more normal life and, and get back involved in the things they love to do.
4: Thank
1: you so much. And Dr. Mistiklitz?
2: This is what I would
3: say. I think we need... Uh, each other, and I'm going to just elaborate. Uh, we need surgeons, we need radiation oncologists, and I'm speaking as a physician. But I, we need you, patients, too, because as we kind of indicated, um, you're going to be a tremendous uh, source for us of, you know, uh, of encouragement. Because sometimes, obviously, we can have a bad moment, and kind of seeing you that you succeeded and you know you can, can conquer the cancer. So um, please be vocal, please be active. You know, um, talk to us and to uh, offer you services, because I always say pay it forward. There are many, many patients that are in the beginning of this journey. We need each other. I think here we work as a team, not just as physicians, we the speakers. We cannot do it without your help and your feedback and with Carolyn, because obviously there are so many people behind the scenes that kind of made it happen. Uh, and, you know, uh, you hear some of the voices, you know, picking the ones that they pick up the phone or arrange. So we cannot do it without you, and this is a tremendous group. I'm uh, so proud of uh, all of you, and I'm, I'm so grateful to be part of that.
1: Thank you so much, Judge Mastiklis. And Dr. Fleischman?
4: Sure. Apart from the technical things addressed about how to do the calls and, and use technology as your friend, I think one of the most valuable messages from today is reaching out to veteran patients through your treatment center or the agencies who can really help you understand what it was like for them and the tricks that they used to get through the treatment, Um, and um, I think that's a very important and very helpful comment. And Ms. Bearden?
6: Um, just communication with your healthcare team, um, no small issue is too small to mention, and things happen um, sometimes just showing themselves and they can grow quite quickly as far as being an issue. So the sooner the better that you reach out to your healthcare team, um, I always recommend patients tell whoever you're talking to, hey, I'm having this issue, and and if they can help you, then they will help you. If not, then ask who should I talk to about this and then follow up with that, make sure you have your healthcare team's contact information and you know how to reach them and you know who the members are because there are a lot of members like we've heard about today on the call and so um, each one of us is here for you um, and we want to make sure that we can do everything we can do to help your time going through this treatment and beyond as comfortable as possible and as successful as possible.
1: And the student, do you also want to comment just how important the role of the dietitian is for head and neck, uh, oral and head and neck cancer patients
4: is?
6: Yeah, I, I mean, um, you know, the dietitian is, is the one who will help with individualizing your um, diet and modifying, helping you know how to modify it um, based on the side effects and symptoms that you're experiencing. Um, you know, if you're having a feeding tube place, which is not uncommon during head and neck cancer treatment, they um, can help with educating on how to use the feeding tube and, um you know, the products um that you'll need in order to provide yourself your adequate nutrition and hydration. So they're gonna be your your kind of go to for that. Um help pe- tell people on the healthcare team if you don't understand something or you need more clarification or if something isn't working so um you can f- be sure to get connected if you aren't already with the dietitian so they can help individualize your nutrition plan.
1: Thank you so much. And Ms Allinger?
5: I think those are all wonderful takeaways, and I would just reiterate that you are not alone. Um, We are there to support you in whatever way we can, and please uh, reach out anytime and connect, and um, we'd like to be alongside you for this journey. So thank you so much. Thank you. I want to thank our speakers. I also want to thank
1: our participants. Although we've done this call before, I have to say the questions on today's program were extraordinary, and our speakers addressing your questions was also wonderful connection between the two, between both speakers and, and the participants as well. And I do want to reiterate what, what Ms. Hollinger has just said, is that um, although this program is about to conclude, we would not want anyone to feel that you're alone. Although it is, of course, people do sometimes, of course, feel alone. But we don't, we don't want you to feel totally alone in coping with head and neck cancer, any type of cancer. We want you to now know that you are part of a community of support and certainly the oral the Head & Neck Cancer Alliance is an enormous resource for all of you. Um, you certainly can also contact Cancer Care. And of course your health care team, um, they are the go-to people for you because they're treating you um, and they know how to answer your questions best. So take the questions that you asked today and bring them back to your health care team. Remember your health care team consists of your oral surgeon, your, um, your, uh, your chemotherapy physician, um, your oncologist, your um, uh, oncology nurse, oncology social worker, financial planner, navigator, patient navigator, a whole group of people who are there to help you with your concerns and questions. So do take your questions back to them um, and ask your questions as often as you need to um, in terms of being sure that you have um, your questions answered. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day.
0: Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.